This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, and I bought all my own furniture. Uh, coming up, PMQ's Unpacked. It's a good one. It's Keir Starmer taking on Boris Johnson, talking about you-know-what. So that's coming up uh, next. Uh, but first, a special hello to John listening in Washington, D.C. Oh, posh. Uh, he li- loves the podcast, listens daily while walking my son to daycare, which is located right next to the White House. And my favourite programme, hopefully it will be my son's too when he is older, uh, is PMQ's Unpacked, where you're in luck, John, because that's coming up next. But first, of course, we've got our columnists panel. Uh, no Robert Crampton today. He's off having a spray tan. So it's Alice Thompson and Rosman Irwin. Now, um, this is the only time in the show we're going to properly talk about uh, Boris Johnson's flat, but specifically this issue of uh, John Lewis. And, Alice, you've written your column today about the wisdom or otherwise of uh, declaring war on John Lewis. Famously, uh, (laughs) Gary Simons apparently described the flat as left by Theresa May as a John Lewis nightmare. And uh, (laughs) there's lots of other people who pointed that. Most people think John Lewis is quite posh, Alice. Well, it is. That's the point. You actually have to save up for John Lewis. And, you know, I was had my wedding list there and I thought I'd sort of arrived having that. But, you know, I don't think I'd ever really used it before because it, it's sort of very grown up, isn't it? It's like cutlery and uh, haberdashery. And it was all the things that you didn't really get round to until you were grown up enough to have your own house. And they were all built to last. So it was like, you know, if you got your kettle there, you knew you were going to have it forever. Um, <laughs> and it is true. I mean, I have. I've got all the stuff from there. We were forced to have, our, for some reason, a hot plate. I remember my um, grandmother-in-law saying, it's just all you ever need, really. Uh, <laughs> never used it. Apart from that, everything is lasted. And, and it is. It's a kind of aspirational. You know, we don't, you know, you don't buy everything there. That's the weird thing is that. Most of us would love to rent a house that had been totally done up in John Lewis, wouldn't we? Well, yeah, we, I mentioned this on the show yesterday. We, we, we had to make do with our um, wedding list at Debenhams, which I mentioned on Twitter yesterday and got a whole stream of people. So Debenhams, we had to make do with Woolworths. We had to make do with Poundland. <laughs> uh, we had to make do with a ditch. Uh, <laughs> Rosamond, where do you stand on this? Is, uh, is John Lewis posh or a nightmare? 
Uh, it's definitely posh. I completely agree with Alice on that. It um, it clearly is posh. I mean, you know, it's it stands for quality, doesn't it? And um, Patrick Kidd had a wonderful story that he tweeted that he wrote in 2017, and I think this illustrates the difference between Theresa May and um, Boris Johnson. It was in his diary, and uh, it was that Theresa May wanted to pop over to um, you know her local uh, John Lewis to go and bounce on the beds. Um, because she didn't like David Cameron's bed in there, um, and she wanted to replace it with something more that was more comfortable to her. So um, they had to sort of close the shop or something. And um, and and you know, Theresa May and her husband went and and tried out all the mattresses. Um, I, I do think this is, uh, you know, one of those slightly toxic quotes because people will remember it. Because yes, John Lewis is posh to most people. It's certainly posh to me. And in fact, uh, Alice, I was um, when I was thinking about this this morning because I knew we'd be talking about it. Casting my mind back to the MPs' expenses scandal, and the John Lewis list was the thing that caused the most uh, controversy because it was it was the sort of the benchmark by which MPs could could buy something that they the 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 sort of parliamentary officials had a, had the John Lewis list because they sort of looked at. Like you were saying, the price of a kettle or a toaster, and if it was, if what you were claiming was about what a toaster cost in John Lewis, you could get away with it. And lots of people said, "Well, that's what look, normal people can't go out and just buy uh, buy stuff based on John Lewis." But this was a sort of particularly toxic uh, thing. The MPs were seen to be living high on the hog because they were doing their shopping in uh, in John Lewis. Yeah, it's true. It wasn't just the duck houses and the manure. I mean, that, that's what's extraordinary about this, is that everyone would love, really, to have 30,000 quid a year to spend in John Lewis on their house, wouldn't they? I mean, that, that's the problem, is it just sounds great, really. It's not because they all think it sounds dreadful. It's because they all think that's what they want. And so I think it is an issue for them. I don't think people would notice the ins and outs of where the money came from, which is far more complex and is what everyone in Westminster is obsessed by, we all are, is you know, who paid for what when and whether Boris Johnson ever thought he was going to have to pay for it, which we suspect he probably didn't at the time. Um, and it's not even about whether the wallpaper was beautiful or not. It is that sense that, uh, that they already had quite a lot of money to do on the flat. And also, they're not going to have it forever. It looks like they think they're going to be there for years if they start <laughs> doing it up, don't they? And actually, in a way... That's kind of quite bad luck, I'd have thought. But Rosamond's idea I love is that, that all these prime ministers, the thing they hate most is having a bed that someone else slept in, which mm-hmm. the rest of us are quite used to. <laughs> but they all mention that, that they, they all had to go and buy a new bed. They didn't want to sort of sleep in their predecessor's bed. Yeah, I imagine whoever comes uh, after Boris Johnson in particular were quite keen to, uh, <laughs> to replace that. So, so John, John is just texting and saying, can the media please stop debating how posh or otherwise John Lewis is? It, and, th- and then basically goes on to do exactly that. He says, it doesn't matter, it's not for everyone. And to many people, it's not posh, it's not to me, and I'm just ordinary middle class. I buy loads from there. And I, but I suppose that maybe the question is, Osmond, that, that in the past, when, M- when MPs and particularly prime ministers try to present themselves as an ordinary person, you know, David Cameron having his, his staycation in Cornwall and uh, pointing at fish and ice creams and all of that sort of thing, while also then quietly going off and having a sort of expensive holiday at the same time. If you present yourself as a man of the people or woman of the, woman of the people, um, you, you you then get sort of uh, hung up, you, you, you know, hung by your own petard, if you're then found to be splashing the cash and shopping in places that, that normal people don't. Whereas actually Boris Johnson's this weird sort of Teflon politician who... Who, who his appeal isn't necessarily based on telling the truth or being like you or I. Um, and so maybe he can rise above it and people just think, well, it doesn't matter, does it? I know he's a bit odd, but I still quite like him. 
What I kept thinking about reading Alice's column is that he suffers from something that Sonia Pennell in her book about Johnson calls tramp dread, which is a fear that he could basically end up on the streets if he doesn't keep earning money. Because, of course, Alice is completely right that his physical appearance, he doesn't spend loads of money on clothes. He doesn't spend loads of money on, you know, lot, well, lots of the things that, that people in his circle might spend money on. But I actually think there's something really telling about the idea that his great fear is ending up on the streets because that sort of tells you something about the circles he lives in because it isn't, he doesn't have supermarket cashier dread, you know, or healthcare assistant dread. The person he's afraid of is the one person he interacts with who is very, very poor, right? Which is somebody who's on the street because, you know, it's, unfortunately there's homeless people everywhere that we all see. But he doesn't have a sort of dread of working hard and still not having enough money to feel comfortable. It's that his great fear and the thing that has driven him and, and you know, has probably got him in a bit of a mess uh, numerous times in the past um, is this fear that it could all fall apart and go horribly wrong and, you know, the sort of whole thing collapses. But, of course, yes, he doesn't spend much money on his appearance, but, of course, he has spent a huge amount of money on houses, um, very expensive school fees and the type of things that actually, you know, lots of people would love to have but can't afford. Exactly what well, I have to say. Whenever, if any, there was a story, was it last autumn that Boris Johnson was very concerned about not having enough money, you know, just struggling yeah. by on 150,000, <laughs> uh, which is, I'll do my maths, is that eight times the average um, uh, income in the UK, the average wage of the UK? So, yeah, probably not. You need a very, very small violin for that, which I'm sure um, the, the artisan interior decorator will, will also, well, we have checkers, don't we? I mean, that's the, that's the thing that he's not saying, is he's got his vast house in the country that he's allowed to use with a swimming pool and a tennis court and the barbecue that was given by the Obamas. So, I mean, whatever you think about the size of the flat in London, he can go out now at weekends. <laughs> he's going, you know, the staycation for him is very different from the staycation for the rest of us. Um, so, you know, he can't complain that much, I don't feel. I suppose the big concern is that, you know, if he has got new furniture, just hope they keep the plastic on the sofa in case anyone spills any red wine again in a, during a late <laughs> night uh, <laughs> debate with Karen. Well, let's move on from, from all of this because people have started, started to get cross. Um, there's a really uh, interesting debate about uh, what's, what's going on in India right now. The COVID death toll has now surpassed 200,000. Daily cases have topped 300,000 uh, in the past six days. Uh, Dominic Raab giving a statement to the House of Commons later on uh, Britain's response to sort of um, uh, the, the situation in India and this question of um, vaccines and whether or not we could be helping uh, India more. I think number 10 have said that they don't have surplus. Britain currently doesn't have a surplus supply of vaccines. But it sort of raises the question, um, given that, you know, the, the, the older people are the far worse hit, we're already doing... Matt Hancock's 42 and he says he's waiting by his phone to get his vaccine. Um, even though, you know, somebody will tell him he could just put his phone in his pocket and it will, it will ring wherever he is. But um, <laughs> 42 year olds are now getting the jab. Uh, do we really, arguably, we could not do under 30s and send our vaccines to, to India or, you know, other parts of the world that could really do with this, this help right now? I'm really torn on this because I haven't, so I'm, I'm 35, I haven't had my vaccination yet. Um, and it does feel that the young have disproportionately suffered to protect the older people. Now, of course, lots of them are very happy about that. They're protecting, you know, family or, and, and you know, they're civic minded. So, but they have hugely suffered over the last year. And if we had a situation where the virus was still um, in the group who, you know, tend to socialize the most, i.e. the twenties, if it was still, you know, sort of running rampant in that age group, 
Um, and they were all getting sick. And yes, fine, lots of them would, would recover. But then I've got a friend who's 29 and is suffering with long COVID and is still very, very ill uh, nine months after catching it. Um, it does feel very unfair. But then you look at what's happening in India. It's absolutely horrific. Um, and you think, could we do more to help? Um, I think we've done the right thing in sending ventilators. Um, I hope we could do more of that. Um, but I do wonder, clearly, trying to create a vaccination programme will take um, a lot of time or trying to build one in India. Um, and so you could actually find that it takes so long to do that, that it doesn't actually have a huge amount of effect on this wave. I don't know. I'm really torn on this. And I mean, there is there is just a question of numbers as well. The 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 the, the numbers in it in India are so much greater, both in terms of you know population and cases and all of that. That actually, whatever it is that we could free up in the UK is probably just a drop in the ocean, Alice. In terms of you know the impact it might actually have in India. Yeah, so when you've got three hundred thousand new cases a day in India, I mean, it, it is just astonishing what's happening to them, and they've been very. Um... Actually, they've, I think they've been amazing in a way that they have been at the forefront of producing some of the new vaccines and um, trying to you know that they've got some of the big bases. On them. I remember interviewing Bill Gates and he said they were going to go to India and they were going to try and create as many of the vaccine possibilities there as they could because once India got going, it would be um, the best place from which to produce these vaccines. But it, at the moment, I'm not sure it's going to help that much if we send just a few of our vaccines over. Um, I think, as Rosalind said, it's it's hard because I think the backlash will be so huge in Britain as well. I think using vaccines as soft power is great, but you almost have to vaccinate your own country first. And we are so close to getting, you know, within the next month, six weeks, almost every adult will have had at least their first jab. I think, you know, get to maybe get to that point and then say, you know, we have got these additional um, uh, vaccines. And yet, like I said, the, the backlash is likely to be um, it's quite... Uh, quite big if you know as i speak as a 38 year old who checks the nhs <laughs> website every day to see if uh, they've accidentally thrown the switch and not told anyone um uh so you'll have to wait and see this what comes to that um, just finally the government um uh, boris johnson telling ministers yesterday to use the lessons of remote working in the pandemic to find a efficiency savings in public services it sounds like lots more people are going to be told to work from home there'll be more virtual court appearances more online gp appointments more uh, civil servants perched on the kitchen table is this a good thing, Alice? Is, is, will, we, will we, you know, I don't know, maybe five years' time, look back and think, oh, we, we learned all the wrong lessons of that. We've, we've accidentally made life miserable. Actually, I thought it was quite a sane thing to have come oh, out okay. of Downing Street. I thought it was probably the most sane thing. Is that, yeah, there I mean, these things some, are all relative. Well, some, yes, there are some huge advantages. So I do think the GP's appointments going online, some of that does help and being able to send an email or I think the court appearances, not always. I mean... I don't think you're always going to be able to use everything online, but it has shown us that we don't have to be in the office the entire time. And there are huge savings that could be made. And we've got to catch up with these incredible cancer backlogs, teaching children to read and write. Um, I think if anything can be done to make that easier, then we should be looking at that. So I was quite impressed, actually. It's one of the very few things that's come out of Downing Street <laughs> the last few weeks. I thought, God, they actually are still quite sane. They're actually thinking of, you know, of what to do rather than thinking about themselves. Well, there we are. That's that's what you call balance. Um, <laughs> what about you, Rosman? 
Um, well, it's just, it is a bit hypocritical, isn't it? Back in September, they were telling us all to go back to the office. Meanwhile, they're saying, oh, let's sell off loads of Whitehall buildings and, you know, all the civil servants can work from home. Um, the one thing that worries me, so I, I was pregnant for most of this pandemic. Um, and so all my GP's appointments and um, all of the things with healthcare assistance moved uh, basically onto the phone. And I do think that you miss a lot of care. Um, I totally understand why they need to find efficiencies. I think there are things that could be done better. I think Alice is absolutely right about that. But I think your the level of care you get it can be lower if it's virtual. And, you know, talking of cancer patients, of course, you know, it's one thing you need to see in person to, to check people. Um, and if some of those discussions aren't happening over the phone and, and you know, people aren't being properly looked at. I think that's where I get a bit worried about this. Alice Thompson and Rosman Irwin there. You can read Alice in the Times, Rosman in the Sunday Times. Just get yourself a Times subscription. Go to the times.kdk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, get your popcorn. It's PMQ's Unpacked. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to Redbox Podcast, and now it's time for this. PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley. And Patrick Maguire. Tim Shipman is still off. Uh, who knows where? Maybe he's having some uh, redecorations. <laughs> well, he's probably done. doing the wallpaper, I think. <laughs> that explains how good his access is. Uh, uh, Patrick Maguire, the only really one issue that's going to come up at PMQs today. Yeah, look, I don't think Carrie Simmons is going to get re-elected. It's the long and short of this uh, <laughs> row. It's interesting because often the days when... Uh, you speak to anyone who prepares for PMQs, who is prepared to lead with the opposition for PMQs, and often they'll say that the trickiest sessions to get the better of the Prime Minister are, are the ones where you assume there's a huge open goal in front of you. Because everybody from the lobby to your own backbenchers to number 10 will have been preparing the same questions in their head. So it'd be very interesting. And also it'd be interesting to see if Keir Starmer takes up the mantle of the Electoral Commission or he returns to some of the Dominic Cummings, uh, Cummings testimony early in the week. I imagine we'll have a bit of both. Probably a bit of both. Everyone uh, seems to think that he'll, he'll probably go on the flat. Although we've had a message from Nigel in Breck and he says, don't you think Keir Starmer is more to gain by questioning Boris on his alleged comments on bodies piling up in the, in the street and subsequent denial rather than focus entirely on the Downing Street flat? Well, we can find out now. Let's go live to the House of Commons. Quick off, question number one from Labour leader Keir Starmer. 
Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Can I join the Prime Minister in his remarks about the humanitarian disaster we're witnessing in India? I know the UK has already committed some support, but given the scale and gravity of the disaster, I hope the Foreign Secretary will set out today what more the UK will do to help the Indian people in their hour of need. Can I also join the Prime Minister in his remarks about the Post Office case and ongoing um, injustice? Um, and of course, today is International Workers' Memorial Day. And this day, uh, this year, after all the sacrifices our frontline workers have made during the pandemic, it's even more poignant than usual. I join in solidarity with all those mourning loved ones today. Mr. Speaker, it was reported this week, including in the Daily Mail, the BBC and ITV, backed up by numerous sources, that at the end of October, the Prime Minister said he would rather have, and I quote, bodies pile high than implement another lockdown. Can the Prime Minister tell the House categorically, yes or no, did he make those remarks or remarks to that effect? Prime Minister. No, Mr Speaker, and I think what I think... Uh, the, the right honourable gentleman is a, is a lawyer, I'm given to understand. I think uh, that if he's going to repeat allegations like that, uh, he should come to this House and substantiate those allegations and say, and say where he heard them and who, who, exactly, who exactly is supposed to have said those. Who exactly is supposed to have said those things, Mr Speaker? Uh, because uh, what I certainly can tell him, uh, and he asked about the October decisions, they were very bitter, very difficult decisions, as they would be for any Prime Minister, Mr Speaker, because no one wants to put this country uh, into a lockdown with all the consequences that means for loss of education, for the damage uh, to people's life chances, to the huge medical backlog that, that it entails. But it was thanks to that lockdown, the tough decision that we took, Mr Speaker, that, that, and thanks to the heroic efforts of the British people, that we have got through to the, this stage in the pandemic, where we find ourselves rolling out our vaccine, where we've done 50% of the population, 25% of the adult population have now had two doses, Mr Speaker, and I want to, I, I, lockdowns, lockdowns are miserable, lockdowns are appalling things to have to do, but I, I have to say that I believe that we had absolutely no choice. OK, let's just jump in there, as we do here on Times Radio, pausing the action to try and unpack uh, what's going on. Well, Nigel in Brecon, bang on. God, yeah, Nigel in Brecon is probably, it's probably uh, you know, a code name for Ben Nunn or another one of Keir Starmer's senior communications aides. I think that's <laughs> a really interesting question and an even more interesting answer from Boris Johnson because this isn't a single-sourced assertion. Basically, almost every newspaper and broadcaster has stood the piles of bodies comment up uh, from numerous sources who were in Downing Street. And lots of people, you speak to Tory MPs, say, why would the Prime Minister lie? He has a habit of doing this. Why lie when the truth is so easily verifiable? And indeed, Kirsten was talking about evidence. Dominic Cummings is going to turn up in the Commons, we're led to believe, with a sheaf full of evidence for this and many other things on the 26th of May. And it's a pretty categorical denial. Since uh, that Monday, this Monday, when... Uh, they first, Downing Street first denied this to the Mail. Every other denial that's been forthcoming on this and other comments have been this distortion. Michael Gove at the dispatch box basically said, oh, I couldn't imagine him saying that rather than saying no. But that is straight down the line. It's, a, it's as strong as a denial as you'll get from the Prime Minister. Um, so I really, really d don't understand the strategy, <laughs> strategy here. If, 
if there is one. And there are two things at play here uh, in terms of what you can and can't say in the House of Commons. One is privilege, mm. uh, which is uh, any MP can stand up in the House of Commons and basically say anything free from the possibility of prosecution or being sued, basically to stop them being cowed by malign forces from outside, which is potentially, you know, what uh, Keir Starmer could could plead as a defence for putting forward these allegations. The other thing is misleading the House. And Boris Johnson was, there's no wriggle room at all in that. No, Mr Speaker. You know, I did not say that. Uh, And if it is later proven that he did in some way beyond off-the-record briefings, then that could land him in uh, pretty hot water as well. I mean, Boris Johnson has ever sort of managed to get from uh, that claim to uh, the merits of lockdowns, bitter disagreements, lockdowns are appalling and um, things to do, uh, and then on to to blowing the trumpet of vaccinations. But also, I don't think the inquiry, when it comes, will conclude that second lockdown in October was a roaring success because uh, as soon as they took the brakes off, Infections started to rise again, and then the Kent variant, you know, it, it fails on its own terms. Yeah, and all of the, the, the row, which is the one that Dominic Cummings is going to rehearse, is that if he'd done it sooner, that it might have been more effective. Right, let's go back to the House of Commons then. Question two from Keir Starmer. Well, somebody here isn't telling the truth. The House will have heard the Prime Minister's answer, and I remind him the Ministerial Code says, and I quote, Ministers who knowingly mislead Parliament will be expected to offer their resignation. I'll leave it there for now. Turning to another issue, who, who, there'll be further on this, there'll be further on this, believe you me, who initially, and Prime Minister, initially is the key word here, who initially paid for the redecoration of his Downing Street flat? This is the big question. Uh, uh, Mr Speaker, when it comes to misleading Parliament, you may recollect that it was only a few weeks ago uh, that he said uh, that he he didn't oppose this government, uh, this country staying in the, uh, leaving the European Medicines Agency. The fact that he was then uh, forced to retract and leaving the European Medicines Agency was absolutely invaluable uh, for our vaccine rollout. And actually, it was just last week. Uh, that, he, that he said that James Dyson, he said that James Dyson was a, f- a personal friend of mine, uh, a fact that James Dyson has corrected uh, in the newspaper this morning. Uh, as for, as for the, 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 the latest stuff that he's, uh, that he's bringing up, he should know that I've paid for uh, Downing Street refurbishment personally, uh, Mr Speaker, and I, contra- I contrast it, uh, I contrast it, uh, any, any, any further declaration that I have to uh, make, I will, uh, if, if any, will, I will be advised upon uh, by Lord Guy. But if he talks about housing costs, uh, Mr Speaker, then the people of this country can make their own decision in just eight days' time. Uh, because on average, Labour councils charge you £93 more in Bandy, uh, the Conservative councils, and Liberal Democrat councils charge you £120 more. That, I think, is the issue. That, I think, is the issue upon which the British people would like him to focus. Wow. I mean, uh, who paid initially for your flat refurbishment? To get from that to um, how much a Lib Dem council will cost you in your Bandy council tax? I mean, but that is fundamentally the calculation that the Prime Minister and the Conservative Party are making, which is people actually really don't particularly care, um, which might be true for better or worse. People might shrug their shoulders and say, uh, he's the Prime Minister, what's 58 grand? And if he's paid, what's the issue? But as a response to... um, legitimate and necessary lines of inquiry in Parliament. I mean, he hope, I hope he's not going to say that to the Electoral Commission who have just launched their probe. It's, I, again, and given that we know that there's, there's a reason the Conservative Party is speaking in the present tense and Cabinet Ministers saying uh, no 
party funds are being used, like Bill Clinton saying it depends what the meaning of the word is, is. It's, <laughs> again, I don't understand why it's really, really hard to get a handle on why the Prime Minister is getting up in Parliament and saying these things that may well be disproven in a few days' time. And the reason this matters, and lots of people say, I don't care, there are other things going on in the world. The reason it matters is because we should know who is lending money to senior politicians. Mm. Because if we know, we might at least be able to join the dots as to what they might have got for it. And, you know, not in any way commenting on this, but were someone to lend the Prime Minister £100,000, you'd want to know that they were doing that. So then you could check, did they then get some contracts? Did they get some preferential treatment or or whatever from uh, the government? And, And the question is, the reason that this is so pertinent is because it seems like, as far as we can ascertain, the work was done, the bill was paid... And Boris Johnson has paid either the Tory party or a Tory donor back for that money, probably because questions were being asked about it and not just because, you know, he couldn't find his checkbook. Um, so let's go back to just as well, that's the background of all of it. I suspect that Keir Starmer might just have another go with the same question. Let's go back to the House of Commons. Mr Speaker, normally when people don't want to incriminate themselves, they go no comment. Let me ask this. Let me give, well, let, let's, let's explore this a bit further, Prime Minister. Let's ask it a different way. Either, this is the initial invoice, Prime Minister, initial invoice, either the taxpayer paid the initial invoice, or it was the Conservative Party, or it was a private donor, or it was the Prime Minister. So I'm making it easy for the Prime Minister. It's now multiple choice. There are only four options. It should be easier than finding the chatty rat, Mr Speaker. So I ask the Prime Minister again, who paid the initial invoice, initial invoice, Prime Minister, for the redecoration of the Prime Minister's flat? The initial invoice. Right, so the same Minister, question. Here we go. Speaker, I've given him the answer, and the answer is I have, I have covered the costs, and I think most people will find it absolutely bizarre. And, of course, there's an electoral commission uh, invest, investigating this, and I, I can tell him that I've conformed in full with the code of conduct, with uh, and, uh, ministers' ministerial uh, code, and uh, I, uh, officials have been kept... Uh, have been advising me throughout this whole thing, but I think people will think it absolutely bizarre that he is focusing on this issue. Uh, when what people want to know is uh, what plans the Labour government might have uh, to improve uh, the life of people in this country. And let me tell you, if he talks about housing again, uh, we're helping people uh, on the housing. I'd rather not spend taxpayers' money, by the way, like the last Labour government who spent £500,000 uh, of taxpayers' money on the Downing Street. But I'd rather... If I, I, I would, that, yes, they did. Yes, they did, tarting it up. I, I, would much rather, I would much rather help people on the, get on the property ladder, and it's this Conservative government that has built 244,000 homes in the last year, which is a record over 30 years. This is a government that gets on with delivering on the people's priorities while he continually raises, I think, issues that most people would find irrelevant to their concerns. I mean, if your defence is nobody cares about this, you're on some slight... I mean, the, actually, to be fair, Boris Johnson made a series of statements there which are going to be really picked over. I conformed with the Code of Conduct and the Ministerial Code. Uh, officials have been advising me throughout on this. I assume that that includes Simon Case, who managed to appear in front of MPs on Monday. 
and say nothing. Um, uh, and the defence that uh, <laughs> the, the Labour Party spent a lot of money when in government tarting it up, a quick bit of math suggests about £30,000 a year, which is actually about half what Boris Johnson has just uh, spent on it, but still no close to getting to the bottom of this question of... of and yeah. there is clearly a gap in between what Boris Johnson is saying and the question that Keir Starmer's yeah, asking. Yeah, he's just not engaging with the question, as, as is the case when any Conservative minister appears on broadcast. And no matter how hard any interviewer tries, they just won't shift from this line that Boris Johnson has paid. You can't get a more direct question than the one Keir Starmer just asked. And, you for, you know, the Prime Minister said an awful lot there. Um, as you said, threw in, peppered his answer with uh, claims of propriety and abidance to codes. But really, I, I wouldn't surprise me if Keir Starmer just kept asking that same question again and again and again. Yeah, you may well be right. A reminder that this morning the Electoral Commission, which is the watchdog for, for all of these things, says they've been in contact with the Conservative Party since late March and have conducted an assessment of the information they've provided to us. We are now satisfied there are reasonable grounds to suspect that an offence or offences may have occurred. We'll therefore continue this work as a formal investigation to establish whether this is the case. So the Electoral Commission is not uh, entirely satisfied that it's all above board. Uh, this PMQ is unpacked on Times Radio. We pause the action live in the House of Commons to try and explain what is going on. Let's go back to the House of Commons. Question four from Keir Starmer. Starmer. Mr Speaker, he talks of priorities. What's he spending his time doing? This is a Prime Minister who, during the pandemic, was nipping out of meetings to choose wallpaper at £840 a roll. A roll. Last week, just last week, he spent his time phoning journalists to moan about his old friend Dominic Cummings. And he's telling the civil service to find out who paid for the redecoration of his flat. The cabinet secretary has been asked to investigate who paid for the refurbishments in the flat. Why doesn't the Prime Minister just tell him that will be the end of the investigation? Mr Speaker, it's been widely reported that Lord Brownlow, who just happens to have been given a peerage by the Conservative Party, was asked to donate £58,000 to help repay for the cost of this refurbishment. Can the Prime Minister, if he's so keen to answer, confirm, did Lord Brownlow make that payment for that purpose? Minister. Mr Speaker, I think I've answered this question uh, several times now. And, and the, answer, the answer is that I have covered the costs. I have met the uh, requirements that I've been obliged to meet in it's fair to say and, there is a smirk uh, on Boris Johnson's to, face. When it comes to the taxpayer and the costs of Number 10 Downing Street, it was the, Labour, it was the, the previous Labour government, I think Tony Blair racked up a bill of £350,000. And I think what the people of this country want to see is, is minimising uh, taxpayer expense. They want to see a government that's focused on their needs uh, and delivering more homes for the people of this country and cutting council tax, which is what we're doing. And it's on that basis that I think people are going to judge our parties on May the 6th. Obviously looking ahead to the local elections again there. I mean, if there's one thing that Boris Johnson hasn't done at all this morning is answer the question of did Lord Brownlow pay for his refurb? Yeah, look, and I think, you know, there is... Uh, uh, Keir Starmer uh, wasn't actually a prosecution barrister, he was a defence barrister, uh, but he more than made up for that in his time at the DPP, and he's building a very strong case against Boris Johnson here, I think. Um, not only, and I think the crucial line earlier in the exchange was um, you say no comment when you don't want to incriminate yourself. And Boris Johnson has offered plenty of comment here, um, but crucially, not the one, not <laughs> not on the question of whether Lord, Lord Brownlow paid for his flat, which seems to be one of those, uh, you know, as um, 
as people in Belfast used to say about a, a certain allegation about Gerry Adams, uh, you know, even the dogs in the street know that Lord Brownlow allegedly paid for this flat. And <laughs> Boris Johnson just doesn't seem to want to acknowledge it. It's really interesting. Uh, we're getting lots of messages uh, coming in. Boris Johnson's a pathological kicker of cans down the road. Always in denial, says David in Croydon. Jenny says Boris Johnson sounds like a petulant guilty child. Denial and obf- obfuscation. Uh, someone else pointing out Peter Mandelson. Didn't Peter Mandelson resign as a minister because of an undeclared loan to help buy a house? And that's why yes, this matters. And, and, our, and our colleague, uh, Henry Zeffman, pointed out that this was circulated by the Tories in an internal briefing paper for when, uh, you know, if uh, a, a Tory MP is going on their local radio station, they're asked about this, they just say, well, you know, Peter Mandelson had to uh, do X, Y, Z uh, for an undeclared loan. And, you know, as ever, attack lines always come back to bite a party. Yeah, so let's, well, let's see if uh, where Keir Starmer goes. Uh, question uh, number five, I think, now from the Labour leader. Starmer. Answer the question. That's what the public scream at their televisions. Every PMQ answer the question. The Prime Minister hasn't answered the question. He knows he hasn't answered the question. He never answers the question. The Prime Minister, the Prime Minister will be aware that he's required to declare any benefits that relate to his political activities, including loans or credit arrangements, within 28 days. 28 days, Prime Minister, yes. He will also know that any donation must be recorded in the register of ministers' interests and that under the law, any donation of over £500 to a political party must be registered and declared. So the rules are very clear. The Electoral Commission now think that there are reasonable grounds to suspect that an offence or offences may have occurred. That's incredibly serious. Can the Prime Minister tell the House, does he believe that any rules or laws have been broken in relation to the refurbishment of the Prime Minister's flat? We can probably guess at the answer to this. This is Boris Johnson. What I believe has been strained to breaking point is the credulity of the public. Uh, he has half an hour every week uh, to put serious and sensible questions to me about the state of the pandemic, about the vaccine rollout, about what we're doing to support our, our NHS, about what we're doing to fight crime, about what we're doing to bounce back from this uh, pandemic, about the economic recovery, about jobs for the people of this country. And he goes on and on, Mr Speaker, about wallpaper when, as I've told him umpteen times now, I paid for it. Keir Starmer's uh, face, uh, quite the picture there, distinctly unimpressed. Yeah, and look, clearly, he is talking to a man who has decided, as the Conservative Party as an entity has decided, not to engage with the question that's being asked. And the political calculation there, distinct from the calculations about process and the questions they'll have to answer to the Electoral Commission and the Standards Commissioner and others, is that voters will not care. Um, But... There is a question here about whether it's worth the Prime Minister's while to burn up a lot of political capital, batting away questions that could straightforwardly be answered. Um, could straightforwardly be answered now. Yes, it'll be painful to do so, but it's the cover-up that always does for you. And whatever uh, whatever issue arises from this will be much, much bigger 
if it happens, because of the obfuscation, because of the delay, and frankly, because of the impression that had the Daily Mail uh, not been leaked the salient details here, we wouldn't be any the wiser. Yeah, we wouldn't know that what, 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 what was going on. We wouldn't know quite how gaudy the wallpaper uh, <laughs> might be, allegedly. Uh, OK, uh, Matt Chorley with the Odd Times Radio, doing PMQs Unpacked with uh, Patrick McGuire, uh, uh, Red Box editor. Uh, right, we can go back then. Let's see how, um, <laughs> having not got very far in his uh, line of duty style interrogation, uh, it's, let's get the last question from Keir Starmer. Does he get anywhere uh, with his peroration? Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, can I remind the Prime Minister of the Nolan Principles, which are meant to govern the behaviour of those in public office? They're these. Selflessness, integrity, objectivity, accountability, openness... Honesty and leadership. Instead, what do we get from this Prime Minister and this Conservative Government? Dodgy contracts, jobs for their mates and cash for access. And who's at the heart of it? The Prime Minister, Major Sleaze, sitting there. Mr Speaker, meanwhile, he talks about priorities. Crime is going up. NHS waiting lists are at record levels and millions of people are worried about their jobs, including Liberty Steel. Mr Speaker, don't the British people deserve a Prime Minister they can trust and a government that is mired in sleaze, cronyism and scandal? Mr Speaker, Mr. Speaker last week he came to this chamber and he attacked me for talking to James Dyson about ventilators, where we're now sending ventilators to help the people of India. And the following day... The following day, Mr Speaker, uh, the Labour front bench said that any Prime Minister in my position would have done exactly the same thing. It wasn't only a few months ago that they were actually attacking Kate Bingham, as saying she was a crony when she helped to set up the vaccine task force that delivered millions of vaccines for the people of this country, Mr Speaker, and helping us to get out of the pandemic. This is a government that is getting on with delivering on the people's priorities. We're rolling out many more nurses, 10,000 more nurses in the NHS now than there were this time last year, 8,771 more police officers on our streets now than there were when I was elected, including tougher sentences, Mr Speaker, for serious sexual and violent criminals, which he opposed, Mr Speaker. We're getting on. And by, and by the way, I, I forgot to mention it. I forgot to mention it. Last night, our, our friends in, in, in the European Union voted to approve our Brexit deal, which he, which he opposed, uh, which enables us not just to take back control of our borders, Mr Speaker, but to deliver free, which it does, which he fervently opposed, enabling us, enabling us, amongst other things, to deal with such threats as the European Super League, uh, Mr Speaker, but it enables us to deliver free ports in places like Teesside, and above all, taking back control of our country has allowed us to deliver the fastest vaccine rollout in Europe, as he well knows, Mr Speaker, which would not have been possible, which would not have been possible if we'd stayed in the European Medicines Agency, which he voted for. Mr Speaker, week after week, the people of this country can see the difference between a Labour Party that twists and turns with the that thinks of nothing except playing political games, whereas this party gets on with delivering on the people's priorities, and I hope that people will vote Conservative on May the 6th. Well, I mean, uh, we'll come on to the content in a moment, but having uh, watched... Boris Johnson do all of his PMQs since he became Prime Minister. That's the angriest I've seen Yeah, I've him. not seen him that rattled since the 2019 the period immediately preceding the election in 2019, the day of you know days of dead, dead in a ditch and humbug, when Brexit was at its most um, 
febrile and ill-tempered. That is not a Boris Johnson we often see at the dispatch box. He was box. pointy and shouty and getting a bit red in the face and looked properly... I mean, as a result, we got the full sort of Boris Johnson greatest hits, everything from Freeport to the European Super League and everything in between. Yeah, and look, that is a potted... That is Boris Johnson's potted electoral offer. I think it's... Um, reading between the lines or a close analysis of both their questions. You had Starmer talking about Liberty Steel, which is a big employer in Hartlepool. Then you had Boris Johnson talking about free ports and, uh, you know, creating jobs on Teesside. Really, actually, this whole exchange is in a microcosm uh, what the, how the how each party would like the Hartlepool by-election campaign, which comes to a head next Thursday when voters go to the polls, and all the other elections, how they'd like it to play out. Labour are saying this is your opportunity to cast judgment on a government that is too busy serving its cronies and uh, feathering its own nest, quite literally in this case, with, with very fancy <laughs> wallpaper. With potentially actual feathers. I don't think we should rule out the possibility <laughs> that there might be actual feathers involved. Uh, well, I imagine they've got lovely goose down pillows. But anyway, um, <laughs> and then Boris Johnson on the other side saying, actually, well, you know, what's a little bit of, you know, whatever between mates and look at me delivering on your actual priorities where... Uh, Keir Starmer is carping in Westminster and look, it might be too soon next Thursday to make a judgment on that but we'll see it's late. It's clearly a theme Labour want to hammer away at because that's the point of vulnerability they think with Boris Johnson and his voters the, 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 the charge that they're the same old Tories Yeah, we should point out that um, Keir Starmer is reading out the Nolan principles as he described them selflessness, integrity, objectivity, accountability openness, honesty and leadership they've been around since the mid-90s uh, they're named after uh, Lord Nolan uh, Michael Nolan uh, not the um, not the sisters. Not the sisters. <laughs> to be, although I'm sure they do also live up to all of those. Uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> a, that's actually you know the six Nolan sisters are honesty, integrity, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> lo- lovely Irish names. Anyway, and in terms of you're right because the political. I mean, it feels like we could be slightly trapped at sorry listeners, but we could be slightly trapped in this political row until next Thursday mm. because these big set of elections happening in uh, Wales, Scotland. Uh, and then across uh, much of England, uh, lots of council uh, seats up, some big mayoral contests. The Tees Valley one is in, in particular, as you, you just touched on. And then, of course, Hartlepool. And actually, were Boris Johnson to win Tees Valley uh, mayoral and potentially Hartlepool, would that change this political conversation? Uh, very good question. I, I don't imagine so. Because, you know, for Labour, are, Labour are hammering away at this, not just because it's politically expedient, but because they think it raises serious questions about a propriety about the Prime Minister. But nor, if Boris Johnson wins a swathe of mayoralties and Hartlepool, basically, you know, these rounds are resolved more quickly when there is political pressure on the Prime Minister to do so. There is no Conservative, unless something's happened while we've been talking, no Conservative MP, I think, is going to get up and do anything that hastens the demise of their big election winner. Now, actually... If it's proven to hurt the Prime Minister at the polls, then maybe you'll see someone ease building saying, look, we threw away a, the, a fortnight before local elections in which we could have made a really big splash and staked our claim to be, you know, the, truly the people's government and win seats we never had before. Um, but, you know, we'll see. I suppose, actually, the, the, the gamble then, it, it were Labour to lose Hartlepool, you know, one of the few potentially red wall seats that they've managed to hold on to uh, last time, you could see the conversation turn quite quickly into Keir Starmer's yes, uh, future, yeah, which yeah. could uh, massively change things. Uh, Tony uh, has just been in touch, listening in, um, saying Boris Johnson is right to think voters don't care about honesty. Nobody would vote for Boris Johnson if honesty was important to them. I did actually earlier in the week take out the, uh, the YouGov poll. And nobody trusted Boris Johnson when he 
you know, trustworthiness was not high on the agenda when he won in 2019. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, uh, an old sage, an old lobby sage, I, I think it was John Rensselaer, and even if it wasn't, he'd know this anyway, uh, of The Independent, said Kinnock, Neil Kinnock, was cons- consistently polled as more honest than Thatcher. And obviously we know how that ended. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times Radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box Podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription. To get that, go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.